0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: This is the Gator Nation football podcast with your host, Alan Williams and James DeVirgino.
0: This place is an insane
2: asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James Virgilio, alongside Alan Williams. We are brought to you by my bookie. And this is what we're going to call a
1: COVID bye week. Alan. Yeah, an unexpected bye week here in the middle of the season where we'll... Keep pushing all the games back and we'll see what happens. And technically it's 2 by bi-weeks, but we're here go. for you.
2: Yeah. Some of you reached out on the various social media outlets and asked us, are, are we going to be podcasting? And of course we are. We're here with you each and every week during the season where we will remain. And there is plenty of good stuff for us to talk about today. And we're going to talk a lot about, in fact, some meta topics. So I think for some of you, you've probably been waiting for for this kind of podcast. We're going to discuss some coaching strategies, hiring and firing, Uh, What should or shouldn't be done? Things we see around the country. What's up with the defenses? Have they gotten better? Uh, What's up with Arkansas in general? We'll discuss those things. As always, if you like the content, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, become a patron on Patreon. And new this week, Alan, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. The Gator Nation Football Podcast is on YouTube where we will provide film breakdowns
1: throughout the season. Yeah, let me just give a shout out to James who... Spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks, you know, kind of monkeying around with the stuff on Twitter, trying different things, getting YouTube up and running, getting boned by his iPad, just a lot of headaches, but the content is really cool. So thanks for working on it, James.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the iPad scenario. So I actually had all the A&M footage ready to roll in the middle of last week, and I could not, for reasons I will not go into and discuss, it would not come off my iPad because I had two little memory because best buy was sold out of the bigger ipad i needed that day and things just went in the wrong direction but not to worry we got it done and we got it posted it's sort of a mega of film it's like an hour long so for those of you that haven't seen it yet or don't know about it because not all of you follow us on twitter or facebook or other areas and that is in fact the best way to get the news from us nowadays so you should if i were you and you like the like the show Follow us on something, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, and you can see our latest updates. Definitely subscribe on YouTube. That way you'll always get every new film breakdown video we have. But some people were were telling me, like, what, have you lost your mind, an hour-long film breakdown? And I said, maybe I have. I don't know. We're we're tinkerers on this podcast, so we put stuff out there. And uh, there I suppose is what we're calling the ways to fix the Florida defense and what's wrong with it. Is sort of the title of that YouTube video, so it's got a lot of stuff in there from the AM game, but really it's a meta study of Grantham in a, in, in a nutshell. All of those things that you see on that podcast have been exhibited in other games, and it is the main reason why uh, you've heard me especially say what I've said. So if you're curious about what some of these plays look like, you're curious about learning about defenses in general what a cover one two three or four is how you're supposed to defend what linebackers do how you how you line up in the front seven what a front seven is that video will go a long way towards teaching you those things sort of as a secondary objective okay without further ado we of course have some new patrons that we are excited to welcome yeah welcome aboard the, the dono nation Coming in with a medium dono is one Laura Beals, better known to Alan and I as
1: Elstew. Yeah, wow, Elstew, the legend of Elstew, right? Man, thankful to have you on the Gator Nation dono team. What's up, Laura?
2: Yeah, all the way out there in Colorado. Great, to, great to have you. And then we have Sang Huang, which again, if these names aren't right, write me and tell me. We try our best it. each and every week. Uh, at a large dono level and then a level up from Andrew Amend also coming into a large dono and then a level up from Mark Holcomb coming into a large dono. So three Thank large donos. Appreciate that. Uh, two new trust donos from some new patrons in Justin Holder and then Deucey Poppy. Welcome aboard. Great to have you. Uh, XL dono, really a, a XL plus dono here from from Bill Smoke. The XL plus dono category is becoming very popular, by the way. And then we have a brand new category that occurred this week. Sometimes you get to invent your own category if you do enough. Here. You do. And as a quick refresher on the podcast, because sometimes we don't always say this, the way that the throne works is essentially whoever is contributing the most on patron, whether it's a one time, it's a one time donation or consistently, whatever the highest number is that month uh, is the king. And the king obviously has been from the beginning, from day one, when we started this, Alexander Leventhal, which is a rather remarkable run because people have come and challenged Alexander. Uh, Today, the day of our recording, we had an extremely strong challenge. Coming in with a Heisman bomb, as coined by this donor. A Heisman bomb, which is 7, 11, and 15. So our three Heisman Trophy uh, winners, adding up to 330. 7-11-15 7-11-15 is thirty three. That's three thirty. That was good enough to make Dr. Matthew Galloway the new king of the Gator Nation Football Podcast Dono Jungle. When this happens, a message is sent to the previous king. In this case, Alexander Leventhal. No amount is said. All that's said is you have been dethroned. Each and every time this has happened. Sir Alexander Leventhal has responded back with fire and brimstone and immediate dono upgrades. It was not any different this time, Alan. Alexander responded back, immediately bumped up his level. Uh, Of course, course, no one knows what level is but us, but bumped it up, retook the throne. However, However, there has been a major move in the podcast kingdom that we should tell all of you about. So this was often discussed in the beginning, whether we should tell the king immediately or wait until the episode for the king to find out. And King Alexander Leventhal has, in fact, decided that moving forward, if someone dethrones him, it's best if he finds out on the podcast, which means we will have, in fact, kings for a day, at least, so to speak, kings for a week, whatever you want to look at in the future, if you're able to surpass Sir Alexander Leventhal, uh, which I think is fun. In the first place. But that challenger who came in strong and was king, at least for 10 to 15 minutes, uh, was in fact Dr. Matthew Galloway, who is going to be featured exclusively and extensively on this podcast for many reasons, which you're going to hear. I won't spoil it yet, but that is a Heisman bomb. It was such a creative category, although many of you may never give at that level, which is totally fine. We put it there as a permanent dono category. Very creative, nice work. We love how our listeners are constantly upping the game and of course as always alan and i are beyond humbled and blown away with the support and the passion that all of you show us each and every week through your your letters through your support Um, it just means a ton and we love sharing it with you because it's it's entertaining and awesome and again like
1: we're just constantly blown away by it and i do want to say just from my end too, thank you guys for the notes that you send in there some of them are really really cool and, yeah, we really appreciate that as well. Okay, uh, now onto the Dono Legends. There's a lot of you guys. You guys are all awesome. Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcelisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kaine, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson. I don't know if that's the NBA announcer, but I'm just going to assume that it is. Tim Hondurik, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary. Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, and of course, the newly minted no no legend Dr. Matthew Galloway. Okay, James. Stuff happened this week. Some games got moved. Stuff got shifted around. Of course, the LSU game got shifted first to December 12th. That was the bye week created by the SEC essentially for this purpose that they would leave a week right before the SEC championship game which would be on the 19th and then later on we found out Missouri also got moved uh, they did some switching around Missouri is now playing someone else different this week and we'll be playing Missouri Halloween night on the 31st at 7 30 p.m. at least as of right now kooky stuff James 2020 is wild just your immediate reaction to that news well, I think the main takeaway
2: is if you listen to our Scott Strickland episode, they had built in two weeks. If you're doing the math at home, Florida is out of weeks. Now, we are probably going to be more or less past the major COVID scare. If you add the numbers up of who tested positive in the offseason and where we are now. Hopefully, yes. Yeah, not a guarantee. But that doesn't have anything to do, Alan, with our opponents. So now I think we're we're entering into very interesting territory is what if when we play Georgia, Georgia has a COVID outbreak. That's true. Where does that game go and what does the SEC do? So we're not going to spend a lot of time speculating on that. But to me, that's the first thing I thought of is that we are out of margin. Same. Uh, not every school is, but we are out of margin now. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why you saw them work hard for Missouri to essentially be able to move their schedule where they're playing Kentucky this week when they were supposed to play us and then. Shift some other stuff around, but things could get very interesting, especially if one of the potential title contender teams loses the game. Right now, if if really Alabama, Georgia, or Florida are going to be your obvious choices as we move along this season, uh, playing in the SEC title game, if one of them were to lose the game, you'd be in trouble. Uh, depending on how things play out, that may or may not matter if teams can clinch, and I think the SEC is counting on that. So we'll see what happens, but. All in all, this is the world we live in right now. I don't think it's too shocking to anyone that this is what you'd have to survive in a football season. And of course, depending on where you fall on the spectrum, this could either be egregious and ridiculous and we shouldn't be playing or we should play despite people having COVID tests positive or somewhere in between. We just deal with the realities of what could happen with a schedule uh, and the margin that we have. So that's that's my snap reaction to it. And if it does all work out, Alan, December could be very fun. If Florida can get some wins, you're going to talk about Tennessee, then LSU with your whole entire season on the line. Two of your rival teams back-to-back with everything to play for could be a ton of fun.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that we get to that point. You're right. The SEC does need to release what the tiebreakers are going to be if there's a, I guess, a difference in number of games played. Because that's going to get super political really fast if they don't. Um, they probably should have already done it. Um, there's a lot, obviously, of logistics and decisions that we made. I I understand why things – maybe they've already made those decisions. They just haven't released it, at least as far as I know. Um, hopefully that's coming down the pike soon. But I think my posture to, towards this season is that I'm grateful for any football that we get and trying not to be too disappointed when we miss stuff. Um Again, there's no fluff, really. Where you're not canceling, you know, Eastern Washington anymore. You're canceling conference games. So, hopefully, SEC continues to dodge bullets here. Uh, the Big Ten is the one who I think is going to have a really rough time with this, with some of their protocols they've set in place. Um, yeah, I think this is fine, like schedule-wise. You know, I think I'm glad the SEC prepared for this. Hopefully. Like you said, we're not maybe like catching some of the flack of other teams moving through some of what we just went through. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to get too up or too down right now on this because it could all go away really quickly. But I think the SEC and college football in general has done a good job of navigating the circumstances that are put in front of and the rules that they're having to abide by. It's all you can do. It's all
2: anyone can do. And again, I think we talked about the wisdom of the SEC throughout this process. That's true. And if you were going to play a season, as we had Scott on, it's hard to think that anyone has really done it better than the SEC has. Again, if you were going to play a season, if you find yourself in the camp where you were never going to play no matter what, then fine, you probably think this is a disaster, right? But if you were going to play, the way they built it out, the flexibility they gave themselves the protocol they put in place. It is all very prudent, given that. Whereas I think like you mentioned, the Big Ten is in such a weird predicament where essentially if one team has a COVID outbreak, that team's gonna miss probably three games. And then they don't even have any makeup window time. So keep an eye on what goes on there. Things will be will be interesting. All right, Alan, the big question that everyone seemed to be asking, you're asking, I'm asking is we got this time off. We're coming off of a, of a really ugly, frustrating A&M loss. Is there any way that the extra time benefits Florida? Is this helpful
1: versus playing football games as we would have? So yeah, this is a, the sneaky silver lining, potentially. Uh, often you look ahead to a bye week to make significant changes. So whether that's schematically or structurally, you have a pause, you have a little bit more time, right? You don't you don't have a, an opponent the next week that you're Rapidly preparing for you. So you have a little bit of a moment to peek your head up look around take a bigger assessment, which you can't do with the Just a freight train coming over you. We have to win this game the next week now. We have two weeks, which is very strange um, And so I do think there is opportunity here for the coaches especially since they're not around the players as much potentially some their the facilities are closed I don't know what they're doing with their time and how they're managing this, whether it's as free as I think it might be, or maybe it's there's a lot of other stuff going on, but you would think that there's kind of a moment here to assess the larger picture of the direction of our football team. Now, again, not practicing during the middle of the season, you know, even if you make choices, do you have the time to implement it? Those are good questions, but there is a narrative through line here that the Gators come out on the other side a significantly different team. We talked about this last time, just even before the LSU game, could they make major changes? I think the opportunity is there to at least look at it. Now, again, implementing it is a different story. What do you think, James? Does is is your gut tell you that this is potentially beneficial for the Gators? So you brought up the main, the main items to walk through. And let's
2: start first with, is this beneficial for the coaches? And we're going to talk only about what you said. Uh, and, and then I'll go into the, the realities of actually practicing. So is this beneficial for the coaches? And the answer in the meta thought is absolutely yes. Imagine your life is so busy. Some of you out there are married. You have children. You have busy jobs. The amount of learning you're able to do uh, in your job probably goes down, right? Your extracurricular book reading or, or how you're going to you know master your craft further. There's more demands on that time. If other things free up, now maybe you're able to spend an hour or two a day investing into, into furthering your own education, into a different hobby, into whatever. If you're a football coach in the middle of the season, you're sort of just drowning all the time. It's how a lot of these guys handle this. And the chance to kind of pause, watch all the film from what you've done so far, watch what other people are doing. That's a big blessing. Watch what other schools are doing. Reassess your actual overall strategy, even though you're in the middle of a season and think, hey, you know what, maybe we should just scrap this strategy and go to something else. You could do that. That could be done. That's an opportunity that would not be afforded to you if you have to run practices, schedule, all these other things. So there is an opportunity for that to happen, Alan, like you mentioned, which I think is important. I think outside of that, essentially everything else is a negative. Not being able to practice with your players means you can't install any new concepts you come up with. Uh, obviously I've, I've coached at a distant level. Like we mentioned kind of that pro flag football team. I coach is almost like a national team where there's players all over the country. I might send them a playbook. I might send them film to watch. I might send them route trees to look at, but inevitably when they come to camp there, they don't have that stuff down. And a lot of these guys are professionals in the CFL. They were high level college players. College football players are also not going to have that stuff perfectly down So even if, let's say, we did the dream scenario for me and Grantham gets fired today and we have two weeks to put in a new defense, could those things be done at a base level? Yes. Could it improve the team? I think so. I would do it. We've already covered that. It could be done. It could be installed. You could get new terminology. You could send out your defensive playbook to all of your players. And then you could really strip it down to the base level to then begin installing it with the Missouri game. And by Georgia, you're at least 50% through your install. That could be done. That could be done. That's the benefit of this. But I think at our stage, losing all those opportunities to tackle, to work together, to go over what went wrong uh, is harmful. And in case you don't know this, it's not expected that Florida is going to even get back to practicing Allen really until late this week, early next week, which means that all of this time is not being used on the field. So to put a little bow on this, if we use the time correctly, it would be used exactly as you mentioned it. Players would watch film players would watch themselves on film. Players would get the new scheme from the coach to improve upon what's been going on so far, which has not been good. And coaches would take a hard look in the mirror and say, why are we struggling? What could we do differently? What types of personnel could we use instead of what we're using? And if I had to make a staff change, now's actually an amazing time to do it because I, I would give that other guy time. He does not come in on a game week. So that's the golden opportunity in front of us. At the end, you mentioned there is some hope. Of course, I just don't have any. I don't think we're going to make any of those changes. And therefore, I don't expect anything to be different uh, coming out of the out of the Florida defensive camp. I think when we come out of this, Alan, our offense will still be awesome and our defense will still be terrible. And until something proves otherwise, that's just what we should expect based upon the evidence. But those are the pieces that, that could be there. And, and lastly, maybe if Bill Belichick had this time, right? A master of the game. He would certainly use it in the most advantageous way possible for his team. I think Dan Mullen's capable of that on his offensive side of the football. So far, this is where the big questions are raised for me for Coach Mullen, Alan, is, is he a general enough to apply that to the rest of his team, including his staff, beyond just the offense? And maybe he will, right? Maybe he will. There is a line for hope, like you mentioned. We'll see. So interesting times uh, to be a football coach. And hopefully Florida did use this to at least look around the country and see how different many other teams are approaching their defense.
1: So Mullen did say he was going to take a look at all, all things defensive personnel scheme. So he's at least said publicly he was going to take a closer look, be more invested on that side of the ball. Um. Now there there is some middle ground between firing Grantham, doing a giant overhaul of scheme and personnel, new playbooks, and doing nothing. So the playbook is on the defensive side. You know it's large. You have different things you could do. So there is plenty of opportunity to say, here are a few things we're doing well. There's not many of them. Here are these other things. That we're doing poorly we're going to stop doing those we're not going to run this we're not going to run this defensive formation we're not going to play with these particular group of players we're going to do more of this other thing and we're going to try this other thing that we haven't been doing either personnel or scheme wise so th- that's not maybe a, the overhaul that you could do in the off season but it is a long enough time where you could just say let's go for it now the really interesting thing is that we are so bottomed out we have nowhere to go but up now normally the argument against making these big changes is like well it could get worse it's hard for us to get too much worse so any gambles that you make or chances that you take theoretically doesn't lose you anything even if it's bad it's already bad so um i i wouldn't anticipate us doing nothing different i don't know the scale of that that's impossible to know what the coaches feel like they can accomplish during this window, not even just what they would want to do, what the, can they do? So even if Dan walked in and said, we need to do all these things different in our time frame," is that possible? Is that realistic? Um, so I don't know, we'll see. Uh, I would be hopeful that something is different. It would be very disappointing just to see us have the same personnel running the same schemes against Missouri. Well, that's where I've been. That's
2: been my life under Grantham, and I would expect if anything happens, it'll be the smallest possible change. One guy here, one guy there. You're 10% just less not, of this, like right. You're okay. just not going to see. I think that's what that's the that's a very likely. And that that's likelihood. But like you mentioned, there are possibilities, and that's where some of you get hopeful. And, and if we had a different staff. I would feel differently. I might answer the question differently. It's important to note, I'm not saying that every coach would react this way, but I think everyone that's listened to this pod for a long time knows that once enough data gets put out there on something, I'm going to anchor myself to that hypothesis until something more strongly comes along and overweights it. And right now, that that is the deal with Grantham, is he does what he does. He does not do things differently. He does not change what's happening. He is very stubborn, like most football coaches are. Which brings me to this, Alan. A lot of a lot of scuttlebutt on on the discussion waves uh, that are you know out there, whether it's social media on Twitter or somewhere else, or your the water cooler or your family or your friends, is that it's it's harmful or you can't fire a coach during the season. Uh, there's some protective measure that exists around firing a coach and that's bad for your team. So, what do you think about that? Is this true? How do you feel about that? Would you fire a coach midseason if you're a head coach? Is there a circumstance where you would do this? Or are you a type of guy who would always finish the season with your coaches?
1: I I would do it, but it'd have to be extreme. Certainly I would do it. Um, if I thought, ultimate, especially for personal or moral failure or just something that you feel like you have to remove a person culturally from your team, I would be more quick to do that than... Competence. Um, this is hard because there is a case to be made for sticking with your person. You know, making improvements. The downside is really great in switching. If you're in more conservative nature, that that avenue appeals to you, right? What you would lose is potentially more than what you would gain. Uh, there's also just tough stuff when you fire people. That family's got to pick up and move. You're saying to that guy's kids, you're not going to school here anymore. The assistant coaches that kind of travel with that guy, you're all leaving town. you got to put your homes up for sale. There's real personal things in this, too, that I think sometimes outweigh some of the tactical measures. So you don't want to be blind to those realities and those circumstances. Ultimately, you have to do what's best for your players and your entire organization, your school. You need to be responsible to the job that the university is paying you a lot of money to do. And you'd be responsible to the fans and the st- other stakeholders in the program. So that's a calculation. How much do you lose? How much do you potentially get better? Um, man, it's tough. I mean, you know, Nick Saban fired Lane Kiffin right before the national title game. Cause he felt like potentially the pros outweighed the cons. I'm sure. Did they, they lost that game. Would Lane have been five percent better maybe they won or would he been 30 percent worse and they lose by more i don't no one will ever know that then lane would say he would have been five percent better just because he knew the team team more there's a narrative there so coaches can be fired make a case for me why you think it maybe should happen more than it does yeah, that, that, that's a nice tee-up example. So not every
2: example uh, means that you should obviously fire your coach, and there's different reasons. I think it's clear that Nick Saban could no longer tolerate Lane Kiffin's shenanigans.
1: Missing the bus. A different term things, that I would right?
2: use if we weren't on a family podcast here. But go. that was foolish by Nick Saban. Again, part of being a general, and it's nice to liken – Uh, coaches to generals. I'm going to use an example here where we're going to imagine we're on like an old wooden boat as as a ship captain. That's going to happen in a second. But for now, let's go with a general analogy. If you have a a, a commanding officer that you cannot stand and is disobeying you and is absolutely absurd, but you are at the very end of your war about to fight your most important battle and on the battlefield, this guy's incredible. He's absolutely phenomenal on the battlefield. You suffer through the two weeks of, of not fighting to get the guy on the battlefield, win the war, and then you get rid of the guy, right? And that was Nick Saban's major problem. And he's going to be too prideful to admit that. But I think deep down inside, he knows he never should have gotten rid of Lane Kiffin. That was a huge mistake. He'd already suffered through the entire season and, and a year or two of his antics. Just hang on for two more weeks. And I get that's hard, but I think that's a that's a failure of leadership by Nick Saban. In that case, to recognize what you said, Alan, let's, let's get this right back to the beginning. What is the job of a head football coach? The job is to do what is best for the football team. That is their job. Not what's best for their friends. Not what's best for the coaches they hired. Not what's even best for the individual player. What is best for the program as a whole? So now I want us to imagine that we are on a wooden ship crossing the ocean. I love it. Okay, and we have you have your eight assistant coaches. In this case, they're going to be your rowers. And they're rowing and each of them have a little decision they have to make, right? They have to row, they have to bail out some water, they have to do some things. And as we're halfway through our journey, it's clear that one particular person is constantly taking on water and, and putting the entire boat at risk. And now you can either say, hey, I hired this person because their resume was great. They've crossed the Atlantic 10 different times. They've done all these things really well. But right now, the evidence I see is that the, the, the ship is potentially sinking. And I only get one shot to cross over here. And I've got the right crew. I've got the right resources. I've got the guy who bought the boat for me. I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of the boat. You have a choice to make. Do you either just stick with that and hope, cross your fingers, hey, I hope the evidence I'm seeing doesn't come to fruition and we all don't die because I feel loyal to this person that I selected. Or do you say the evidence right now in front of me says I have to make a change. This person is not getting it done. I need to take them out and move some people around and get to my next destination. And maybe you're not able to bring in a new person onto your boat, right? You can't hire a new coach, but you shuffle some stuff around and you get it done because you're the captain and your job is to do what's best for the boat, what's best for the ship, what's best for the voyage. And that means making a tough decision. So this idea to me, Alan, in college football that you can't fire a coach is ridiculous. That's what it is. You would, fire, you would fire generals and commanding officers in the middle of a war. You would fire um, high-level C-suite executives in the middle of a really important campaign only when you had to. Only when the evidence told you that your end result is potentially going to be lower because of that person, that's when you do it. Because your job is to get peak output. Peak output. And I think that's where things get lost sometimes, is it's not just, well, I hired you for a year, I'm going to keep you here. You don't hire people for terms. You hire them to do a job. And if the job is not getting done, and the evidence is there, and you think it's going to better your ship, you do it. And look, if you're wrong, then you own that. You know, and on this podcast, we're going to be wrong a lot. I'm wrong a lot on this podcast today. I can't wait to bring up several things that I was definitively wrong about, by the way. And we're going to be really wrong about things in the future. We're not always right. And hopefully we're going to come on here. We're going to tell you I was wrong. But I don't want to get in a place in my own life, Alan, and the organizations I'm a part of and the things that I run that I'm ever afraid to do what's best for the organization And then I'm too afraid to handle it on my own by saying, hey, you know what? I thought Alan was the right guy for the job. The data says he's not. I love Alan. I got to move on from him. And if I'm wrong, I want to admit that. I want to say a year later, I got rid of Alan and I shouldn't have. And I want to learn my lesson from that. Maybe I wait longer. Maybe I find new data. That's part of running something. So to me, it's not about slash and burn and fire because you're mad. None of this stuff should be emotional. If you're firing people emotionally, you're a terrible leader. If you're firing them or you're demoting them based upon what the evidence says, that's what good leaders have to do. And those are hard, difficult, frustrating decisions, but that's the only way you get excellent results. And so I just think that's true in anything, not just football or business or war or whatever. You know, you have to invest where you're at and do what is best
1: and ask the tough questions. You have to do those things. So the, the main takeaway from what you just said was don't fire Alan it'll be a mistake and you'll have to admit. Definitively a mistake. The evidence clearly states that that would not so be anything I would there's, do. there's, you know, I, there's no statistical analysis on this. This is hard. So you would want to say, okay, we're going to be like 3% better if we make this move. It's like, that's not worth it. What is our upside with this? What do we gain by doing this? Because there will be downside. Again, we're towards the bottom of that, but even relationally, there might be downside. So, um, and I will admit, I, I help lead an organization Accountability is hard. There's a certain relational currency that you need to have, like you know, rocking the boat at the wrong time can lead to really bad after effects. I love that there's pieces of the organization I help lead where I can look at someone and go, I'm going to trust you to run this, and I'm not going to look in on what you're doing very much until I need to, until you show me that I need to. I'm going to check in. I'm going to help you coach you. I'm going to help resource you. I'm going to help do everything you need to do. But I love that when I can go, I've got a billion things I can do. If I don't have to give one ounce of brain power over here, that frees me up to do so much. I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but it'd be really interesting to ask Dan Mullins, how much time over the past two years have you spent looking at defensive film, studying the analytics of player performance? There's a big chance it's very little. Because that could have been his organizational philosophy. Is I'm going to turn this completely over to Todd Grantham. These guys, I trust them. It's going to make us all better. Now, the highest end is that they're awesome and we are awesome, and there you go. So maybe when he starts looking at it, he sees things that he doesn't like, and he's going to now have the freedom to impose his will upon Todd Grantham, which before maybe you wouldn't have had the organiz- You had the organizational authority, but you didn't have the. Relational currency or the backing of everybody on the team or whatever it might be. It was too risky to make those moves. Now it, it feels like obvious to make those moves. So even if Ty Grantham isn't fired, I think there, that's the place where not that Ty Grantham is going to do things differently, but that Dan Mullen might finally impose upon him to do different things. So that's an interesting subplot because Dan Mullen is so offensive minded. This is like, you know, Steve Spur was the same way. He would hire a defensive coordinator to say, get the job over and we're going to score 40 points. Don't let them score 40 points or whatever. You know, he held them to a high standard, but he didn't like to mess with them. And that's a legitimate coaching philosophy. I mean, other people do it very differently, but I would not be surprised at all if Dan Mullen knew very little about what the defense was actually doing on a day-to-day.
2: And there's actually nothing wrong with that. Right. Outsourcing is a, is a very effective and highly efficient way to run things. In fact, I would argue that's what you should do. You need to hire people that you can trust because you cannot do everything. Uh, that would be wise. But you also have to recognize that when the person you hired is not getting the job done. Yes, you have to make a move. You have to make a move. And and look, Alan, this is not unprecedented. It, typically, when you have to make a move like this, like you mentioned You're not going to overnight go from bad defense to incredible defense, but you can generate a spark. You can get wins. And oh, by the way, this happens in the NFL all the time, right? The Falcons fired Dan Quinn, who should have won a Super Bowl, who had one of the craziest collapses ever. Uh, Dan Quinn, I think, still is a good coach in some regards. But his voice was lost in that locker room last year. And they should have gotten rid of him. And yes, the players love him. But again, good leadership is not always about being loved. The results weren't there. The downward trend was there. They hadn't given him a perfect team. I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking into the Falcons. But point is, in comes Raheem Morris, who was a disaster as the coach of the Bucs. And they go and they, they crush the Vikings on Sunday. They crush them. The defense played great. They were inspired. They were fired up. It was a spark. This Florida defense and the Florida fan base needs a spark. And Grantham, not only, in my opinion, is culpable, you would get a huge spark by taking away the guy that most people attribute the failure to. And the only reason, Alan, that you would keep a guy if all of the the masses were calling for his head would be because you did have the data to suggest that they should stay. And that's wise. I never in a million years would advocate that you should do things because the average person is telling you that you should. True. But I'm going to always tell you to do something if you're sitting in your room in your office and you're Dan Mullen and you're looking around thinking, here's the evidence against Grantham in my defense, and here's the evidence for him. And if the current evidence, I don't care what happened 15 years ago, football's an ever-evolving, changing game. If the current evidence is not strongly in favor of that guy, you've got a serious problem. And I think that's the case now. And I think Dan maybe is even aware of that right now, Alan, but does he recognize that the best thing to do now is to, is to have this spark, is to give his players new energy, is to give the Gator fans new hope, is to change the narrative of the season? Because right now, everyone, for the most part, me, most other people, the players even, are sort of waiting for the inevitable to happen. Defense is still going to suck. We're going to lose to Georgia. We're going to blow some other game. We're not good enough. Whereas if you fire Grantham today, oddly enough, everyone has this new hope, probably too optimistic, but it's there and it's real. And that actually does change your team culture. And, you know, I wish that was going to be done. That's not going to be done. It doesn't seem like Mullen's that kind of guy. We're going to find out what happens in the future. But hopefully that gives you an idea, at least of organizational behavior. This idea that firing a coach in the middle of the season is just definitively bad to me doesn't make any logical sense. Again, it's always about what does the evidence say you should do. That's the sole goal of improving in anything. And by the way, Alan it's why we have a youtube channel now and it's why we run this podcast the way we do we just constantly tinker with stuff and then ask you the listeners what you think but if we don't try stuff we never know and if we don't cut programs out that you guys don't like we don't get better so we try to to exhibit that in our own lives here on the pod Uh, so certainly again always share
1: your feedback with us so there's one caveat to this that we might not be able to we're not insiders on the program does Dan Mullen have the actual freedom to fire Todd and Grant them financially? That that is a question I would have. Um, the optics around that I don't know what Todd's buyout is. So anyway, there there might be forces that play above his head. Um, this is a, some weird circumstances, but um, I think you're overall everything you said was right. I think a, this there might be circumstances beyond that where we don't fully see whether. Dan has the authority to do that kind of thing or not. All right, let's talk about Dan Mullen himself. Uh, he had a rough week optics-wise. We talked to the first part of this last week. You said he was acting like a sore loser in his comments about packing the swamp. Uh, he walked us back a little bit, kind of didn't, kind of did. There's the you know, COVID breakout on the team, and then Dan Mullen himself gets COVID now. I don't think either of those last two things are related to the first. The first one did not cause the second two, but he definitely got dumped on in social media and across the Internet this week. Uh, Thank you, Alan, for asking this question.
2: I want to go back to a previous question. I was just channeling my political candidate there and use my time to discuss uh, that. Also, in your last example there, that would be Scott Strickland's fault. The job of the AD is to support your coach. And if your coach says, hey, I hired this guy. I messed up. I got a problem. Take it out of my salary. Do whatever you need. But on the front end, I need this guy to be fired. And I need you to financially figure it out. Go raise money. Do it. And oh, by the way, I don't think it would be hard for the Florida fans and boosters out there to raise the one and a half or two million bucks to get Grantham out of here. In a season like this with Kyle Trask, probably not a hard sell, even with COVID. All right. On to this one. Mullen had probably his worst week as a Gator. I think, not probably, definitely his worst week. At least perception-wise. As a Gator, perception-wise. He said some things he should not have said, and he didn't really walk them back right away because he was stuck in the mud on his opinion. Um, And had he just handled it differently, it would have been fine, right? Like, yeah, in Florida, the governor has allowed there to be a full stadium if people want to do it. But Mullen knows darn well that the University of Florida is not going to follow the state of Florida because we're going to follow what Stanford and Virginia and North Carolina and Harvard and Yale do because we hold ourselves in that kind of category. He already knows that. So to go in the public and voice that is silly. To do it after you lose is silly. To kind of stick with it is silly. And then unfortunately for Mullen, for him to get COVID, for a large majority of his team to get COVID, for games to be canceled and shuffled around – that's about the worst look that you can have. It looks insensitive, it looks childish, it looks like he's jumping the gun. He's out of touch with what's actually happening. Do I think all of those things are actually true? No. I think the guy lost and was mad. Made a comment and then like most of us out there, if you're being really honest with yourself and me included, you anchor to your opinion, you stick with it. You know it deep down inside you should admit you were wrong, but you don't want to admit you're wrong, so you just kind of keep walking down the path of, well, I meant this or well, I meant that and Here we are. This is all going to fade away relatively quickly. None of this stuff is going to be anything really serious or crazy. Um, You know, Florida had been doing a good job controlling COVID. Players were certainly out and about from what I heard downtown living their lives like most college students would live their lives and they got COVID. I don't know where we were going to go with this, Alan, but not a great week for Mullen. I would expect that he's going to come back with a different tune entirely about COVID in general and how he should be handling it and maybe how serious his curfews are for his players and who knows what. Uh, but I think the conversations between Dan Mullen and Scott Strickland this week were probably pretty interesting. Yeah, I bet would. those were very interesting. And they're good friends, so they're going to have good face-to-face conversations. But I have to imagine those were, those
1: were some unique conversations. Sure, and this is, like I said, it's an optics issue that goes away. And I think Florida fans don't care at all. Like, if you win the games, whatever, you made some a dumb comment, and then your players got COVID, and then you, you got COVID, they don't care. Uh, but in the national perception, he definitely took a beating. And this is the you know 24-hour news cycle, so this will be gone as soon as something else happens. But uh, people out there were, quote-unquote, outraged about it, but that's their, that's their business. So, yeah, not a good week for Dan. I'm sure he was not feeling great about it, and hopefully he bounce, bounces back that this wasn't too much of a distraction for him. All right, do you want to talk about a little bit broader themes in college football? Yeah, let's talk about defenses. Yeah, so really wonky season all over the place. Defenses have been some of the most high-variance teams and sides of the ball out there. Very strange results from week to week. Week three and week four have been some of the just, I don't know, like strangest results. Unpredictable. Some teams playing better, some teams playing really poorly. How do you want to discuss this?
2: Well, there's a couple of thoughts out there. One is that defenses couldn't practice together, they couldn't tackle. We've talked a lot about that. Sure. That's going to affect you. Yeah, that's true. But that's that's 10% at most, right? is how you were practicing when you had, oh, by the way, a month and then some of practice, which is plenty to install your scheme, which does not involve tackling. And as you've seen, if you've checked out that film breakdown on YouTube, uh, there's plenty of video evidence that a lot of our issues have nothing to do with tackling, which you could have practiced every single day. Turn on the NFL on Sunday where teams are scoring at a high clip And sure, you'll see some small issues here and there, but the issues are not the same as our issues. Our issues are different. So what does this mean? Across the country, as we've talked about, Alan, there's a massive shift towards passing-oriented offenses. Now, the NFL has a much easier job of countering this, despite the fact that they are, in fact, giving up more points. Why? Because the majority of their linebackers and secondary players are capable of playing coverage, either man-to-man or in zone. Okay, college, this is just not the case. On a college football team, even with a lot of four stars, a lot of your guys are probably only good at one or the other. They can either play man or they can play zone. They probably can't play both. They can either rush the passer or they can cover. They can either stop the run or they can stop the pass, right? That's why it's way different. So what's happening now is these college units are getting exposed to a much higher level. The ones that are not responding intelligently with their scheme Are getting eviscerated. Nick Saban's defense, which I want to talk about, which we talked about this before, I think was awesome 10 to 12 years ago, needs to make some changes. Teams are taking advantage of their pattern matching. And if you don't know what pattern matching is, if you're playing a man or a zone on on the the ball is snapped, if Alan and I am on the corner and Alan's my my slot nickel right next to me, uh, I may only guard my guy if he runs a certain set of routes. And if the guy in front of me runs a quick slant route where he just takes two or three steps and goes across the field, I let him go to Allen, and then I theoretically pick up Allen's man. Well, if you're thinking ahead in this already, if I'm an offensive coordinator and I know that you like to pattern match on defense, then what do I do? I run a route combination that blows up your pattern matching.
1: really confusing for the defenders.
2: And that's exactly what happened if you watch the Alabama-Georgia game. In fact, that did happen. Georgia hit them twice on deep plays where they blew up their pattern matching, and Alabama hit Georgia where they blew up their pattern matching, which is pretty entertaining. The NFL will rarely do pattern matching for this reason. Now, there are certain parts in the field where it's smart to do it on, but they will do it far less often because it's too dangerous. NFL route runners are much better than college route runners, but even in college, it's way too dangerous It slows down the defender. It creates huge busts in the secondary. This worked much better when offenses were not throwing the ball 38 times a game and purposely running routes to put your defenders in conflict. So that's a little bit of a glimpse into the beauty of football in general, Alan. So a lot of that's going on. uh, But in general, what do we see? What do we see with defenses? Well, one, they are going to get better as the season goes on because players are going to get better at just executing the base plan. I want to give you Alabama as the example at halftime Nick Saban said our execution has not been good enough. Our scheme is fine. We're not going to make any changes. We feel good. In that first half, Georgia was 12 of 25 through the air for 177 yards, two touchdowns and one pick for a passer rating of 81. Not really a great half, but not a bad half, right? In the second half, Bama really didn't change anything. Their scheme didn't change. Their back end didn't change. Their personnel didn't change. Yet Georgia was 6-15 of 15 for 92 yards with two interceptions and a passer rating of 21. So that's an example of a defense got burned against old Miss because I think they need to change their scheme some. Comes into Georgia with a good plan and a good scheme. Struggles in the first half to make plays. That's okay. That's going to happen. Then basically shuts Georgia out for the rest of the entire football game doing the same thing. That is what you would expect to see as the season goes on from the
1: better defenses from better the better defenses,
2: defenses, they're getting more time together. They are going to clean up their execution. That's, that's a lot of it. Now I'm going to give you the flip side. Let's talk about Arkansas.
1: Yeah. Wild. Arkansas,
2: one of the worst defenses in all of college football last year, one of the worst football teams in all of college football last year. In one quick season, I remarked on Saturday, Alan, it's the greatest coaching turnaround I have ever seen in my life at any program at a top level ever. Now, this does not mean that they're trending to win a national title, but it is the single fastest and greatest turnaround. I, they are so sound. If you watch them on film on offensive defense, it is truly remarkable how quickly they've done this. And they did it with COVID, right? Gene Chizik, who's not exactly going to be a coach anyone hangs their hat on for, for brilliant strategic um, you know, thoughts, said the same thing, actually. He said, what Arkansas has done on defense is the single greatest unit turnaround I've ever seen in my coaching career at halftime and after the game he reiterated that so this is a big deal at arkansas but here's what's interesting alan here's what's interesting one sam Pittman, highly respected offensive line coach at georgia goes to arkansas and their offensive line is immediately excellent excellent so that's coaching which we talk a lot about on the defensive side barry odom who's always been known as an excellent defensive football coach comes from missouri gets hired there very good hire but what is arkansas doing what's the secret sauce how are they taking these guys that are infinitely less talented than Florida guys we post this on Twitter on Saturday and Sunday and having so much success here's the answer Arkansas is one of the very few schools in the country running a 3-2-6 defense now we talk a lot about a dime defense a 3-2-6 is a dime defense it's a dime defense in fact this has been around for a very long time teams so have run real it.
1: quickly yep nickel this is just football terminology sometimes it's weird Nickel, you have five defensive backs, you get that five nickel. Nickel is five, right? Mm -hmm. Put one more out there, you don't have a six, a nickel plus a penny, you call it a dime. So, one more, the next level up dime, correct? So,
2: six defensive backs, which means you have either two or three safeties, doesn't matter, you can pick which one you want. Arkansas likes to run three safeties a lot, we'll talk about that in a second. And then the other three are defensive backs. But the bottom line is you have six people who are capable of of covering people in the back end. Again, the 3-2-6, not a new defense. You'll read about it. People will say, oh, it's new. It's a creation. Not a new creation. Been around for many, many years. In fact, it's been a package for some NFL teams for like 20 years ago this defense existed. It was used very rarely. Now what's new about this is it's being used as a base defense. And Arkansas is bold enough, Allen, that they use this on every single snap in the Ole Miss game. Every one. Every passing play, they ran a 3-2-6. Every single passing play. So far this season, they've spent 76 passing snaps in a three-two-six defense or a dime. If you've listened to this podcast before, especially last year, you've heard both Allen and I talk extensively about Florida needing to play more dime and how Grantham loves the nickel. Does not come out of the nickel almost
1: ever, despite us having actually really good personnel to run dime with. He would doesn't come out either way, dime or going heavy against teams that would like to just run it down our throat.
2: Correct. Sort of like the neutral ground, which is which is wrong either way. Uh, so the 3-2-6 obviously is weaker against the run. But here, here is the key with the 3-2-6. Three, three down linemen. Those are the three big guys at the line of scrimmage, right? Two linebackers. Those are the guys we see chasing people around to go like the base level here, right? The simple guys. That's going to be, you know, in our case... Uh, you're going to have either Diabate there or Houston or Vernell. Ventrell Miller. Um, Ventrell Miller. Sorry, Vernell. Vernell Brown, we're talking basketball here, old school. Cool. Uh, Ventrell Miller there. And then, and then in the back end, you're going to have your six defender. So you can do a lot with this. And what this does is when teams like Ole Miss want to spread you out and they want to run the ball, you can change how your front fives align. Now, I'm not going to get too far into this, but you can align those five guys in the gaps the team wants to run the ball into. Now we talked, I talk a lot about gap control on a YouTube uh, podcast or sorry, YouTube broadcast. It's a good way to see that. But teams on defense basically are saying, hey, if I know that you only really want to run the ball in these two gaps and you really want to throw the ball most of the time, then I'm going to put my run defenders in those gaps and I'm going to protect the edge so you can't run around my my linemen. And then I'm going to have a lot of guys to pass to, to be in coverage. That's my plan. Right. So again, Arkansas 76 snaps total this season, Allen. Other teams doing this a lot. AM, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Auburn. They're all in the in the high teens to 20s in snap count, which shows you how much more Arkansas is doing this. Uh, lastly, as we mentioned, the entire game spent against Old Miss was in this 326, Allen. Old Miss went 20 of 38, 210 total yards, two touchdowns, six interceptions. A lot of them were horrible interceptions for a passer rating of 47. Now, I want to pause right here. We mentioned last year when Kyle Trask had a game against Auburn that was quite pedestrian. We went on this podcast and I said, actually, that was a pretty darn good showing by Kyle Trask. Given the extremely limited time he had played, to go against Auburn's very senior-laden, very confusing back end that drops into coverage all the time, is one of the hardest things a quarterback can do. And he successfully did it. Nowadays, Kyle Trask will tear you up if you sit in coverage. Matt Corral, PFF's anointed Heisman candidate, and PFF pro football focus is absurd how it continues to trash Kyle Trask. It's just a joke. Can't handle it. Can't make a read. You find an Achilles heel, right? All of this stuff, all the 3-2-6 conversation to lead into this comment right here. The 3-2-6 is a defense bill to stop passing. You're going to be able to run on it. But the big catch-all here is teams don't want to run. Lane Kiffin doesn't really want to run the ball. He wants to run the ball. Right. But he doesn't want to run the ball the power running game. You're not really at a disadvantage, especially, Allen, if, if your corners can tackle. It's not like if you have 60 DBs in the field, those guys can't stop the run. So this, this really outdated thought with guys like Grantham, Allen, that it's like, well, if I take a linebacker off the field and I put Chester Kimber on, I can't tackle anyone. That's just completely false, especially with shotgun spread running attacks that are quick game oriented. They're not power game oriented. You don't need a huge guy in there. Arkansas is doing this extremely well. They're very well coached. Their players know how to play zone. They know how to play man. They mix up their looks in the back end. Uh, And then perhaps you're wondering how often has Florida played dime this season? How many snaps has Florida had? Six defensive backs on the field. Zero. Zero. Zero snaps we also play ole miss now arkansas the entire game lesser talent than we have lesser cover guys than we have the entire game destroy ole miss what do we do zero snaps now this is where football coaching comes in so heavily and it's why on this podcast we're constantly trying to employ you to think about the game at a different level than just football coaches know best because they coach there's different ways to stop offenses this is not the only way but the point is, this is a creative way. It's a good way. It's sound way, X's and O's wise, and it's working really well for Arkansas, and that's why they've been so competitive. They should be three and one, right? And in fact, most of the young DCS I like employ a lot of three two six, and some of the best ones do too. You know who used this a lot last year and the years before, Alan? Is Dave Aranda at LSU? The three two six is a defense they frequently used to stop heavy spread passing teams. This is not a new concept. Not a new concept, but it is to some coordinators. So there's my long, hover long that was, I don't know, 10-minute defensive rant on this. But Arkansas, extremely impressive, extremely well coached, doing a lot more with less talent. But most of it has to do with waking up to the realities of football in 2020 and getting your guys to buy into the fact that this is how we play defense now against
1: most of the teams we face, especially the teams like Mississippi. So this is an interesting narrative on Arkansas. I mean, part of it is the freedom to, hey, this is what we can do. We might not even be able to play the other style potentially if we had to. I love that they're leaning into their potential advantages and using their roster better. And, you know, there's a certain percentage, I'm sure, of just player buy-in and things like that. But they're doing what's helpful now. Again, we played Ole Miss Week 1. They got to play in Week four um but if you want to play that little game when we play Texas A&M they're not a new team or a new staff uh you spelled exactly what they want to do and that's what they went out and did so um it's interesting i mean the best defenses would be able to stop you whatever you want to do if you want to load up heavy and run it if you're old school Brett Bealmont Arkansas and you Basically, you've recruited an entire team to play only a 3-2-6, and you don't know how to play anything else. They're just going to run it on you forever, and you will never be able to stop them. The best team, the best defenses, will be able to match you whatever you want to do. That's exceptionally hard to do, especially at the college level. You have to give away certain advantages in certain places. Now, yeah, that's why a team like who would play the triple option, no one sees that. They come in, and they catch some people because they're not ready for it. Because they're built to stop not the triple option. They're built to stop other things. So, uh, you know, kudos to the Arkansas staff. I think getting any kind of a competitive nature, not just winning games in conference, I think would have been a, you know, a step forward for them. But they look great so far. They're one of the stores of the season so far.
2: So let's walk through just really quickly some of the top defenses against the pass this season. Really, since this guy's been at this school, Alan, they've been in the top three or four. But Luke Fickle of Cincinnati... They're number one right now in pass defense, and they've been consistently that way. The number ninth
1: ranked overall, Cincinnati
2: Bearcats. Very solid on defense. Uh, Really, no matter who they play, even when they play the teams that are much better than them, they're still sound on defense, right? They just lose out athletically. Uh, Other schools on there, App State second. I expect that to fade away. They've lost the coach that made them that way. They have a new coach this year. But Clemson, number three, not surprisingly. Oh, by the way, Brett Venables likes to run a 3-2-6 and frequently employs it when he plays teams that run spread offenses. Uh, not a new concept. Arkansas is fourth on this list. Remarkable, Alan. They're fourth on this list. The way I've sorted this is by passer rating, opponent passer rating, just absolutely incredible. Arkansas has faced Old Miss. They faced Georgia, right? They faced uh, they teams here that obviously can move the ball down the field. They faced Mississippi State, a team that, you know, Mike Leach, the air raid, a lot of good work here. Fifth, we have UAB. I'll talk more about that in a second. Then you have teams like Air Force and West Virginia. West Virginia has long used a three-two-six and a three-three-five and some other funky defenses because they struggle to recruit bigger linemen. Baylor, we mentioned the aforementioned Dave Aranda. At LSU likes to use that right top ten pass defense. Then Tulsa, who's been fantastic on D, and Kentucky, number ten. So all of those schools we mentioned there, in fact, do feature uh, heavy dime packages against the pass why do i mention all of them we've been getting asked a lot alan for defensive coordinator targets and the ones that i like i'm gonna put i'll put dan quinn on here just because i don't think dan quinn's come back to college but when dan quinn has good talent he runs a system i love it's a very sound numbers oriented defensive unit a lot of man um just sound football that works against anything he's got to have the right guys but it's sound but here's some of these newer guys maybe you've not heard of before but marcus freeman at cincy Has been there now for several years uh, with Luke. Really solid. I think a guy who's a strong up-and-comer is going to get a big job next. If Florida's a big enough jump to go, maybe you take that one. David Reeves at UAB. UAB's been fantastic every single year he's been there. He's a very creative uh, defensive coordinator. And then Joseph Gillespie at Tulsa. Same thing. All these guys are what I'm going to call modern pass Uh, defensive coordinators, right? They're building their defenses to stop the pass first and then address the run. And that's a different way of, of defensive coordinating where it always used to be stop the run first and the pass. I think they recognize those days are over running the football will always be important, but you have got to stop the pass first. If you want to have any shot at beating these teams, especially in college football, Alan, those are some guys I like. I'd like Florida to look at. There's other bigger names we could look at. People keep mentioning Barry Odom. A guy like Barry Odom is not going to leave Arkansas to come to Florida to be a D.C. His next job would be another head coaching job again. Um, despite Florida being much better than Arkansas, that's a that's a move you typically would not make, especially not on a new staff and where he's at right now. Uh, but regardless, a couple of guys to look at, but kind of giving you an idea of what I like to look for is a couple of years in a system where you have a consistent really good rating against opposing quarterbacks against the pass. That's a sign you know what you're doing on defense.
1: Yeah, some interesting guys. I mean, the profile of people is hard to you know parse out too much. If you're serving under Luke Fickle, how much are you running Luke Fickle's scheme? Are you just a guy who's helping him do the job? Yeah, and I will definitely confess I do not know enough about small school defensive coordinators to – come to you with a recommendation. If we fire, grant them the offseason, I think we would do a heavy, heavy deep dive on like who we would actually like to see, or at least the, you know, definitely the profile, which you mentioned, but also who might fit that profile. So interesting name, just conjecture, obviously. Now, you, we might look at one of these guys and be like, actually, no, that's that'd be terrible. Don't hire him. But at least from a distance, those are the the shape of someone that you're looking for. Yeah,
2: those are the guys you you put in your interview room and then you begin asking them questions and see how well they think about stuff on their own. And again, we mentioned that before, there's a profile of guys I'd look for if I was running a committee. And then from there, it's it's what they say and, and how much do they know when you're talking with them. All right, now let's talk about Kirby's Kirby Smart. His just floor his floor strategy, just Kirby. So we, we talked long and hard about Nick Saban in the past, no longer current Nick Saban. The Nick Saban that existed with Jalen Hurts before Tua came in and saved the day, and the Nick Saban that has never returned since then and probably won't ever return since that point in time. But the floor strategy, Nick, is now the floor strategy, Kirby Smart. And the floor strategy is I'm going to take the least amount
1: of risk to get my reward. right? Because I have superior talent. I should, Playing a game straight up against you, I should win almost all the time. I should win. Correct. And so as an
2: investor professionally, this is really how my life is lived. I think about everything like this. How much risk does it take to achieve this goal? And if I'm playing against other people, uh, can they beat me? And if so, how much risk should I accept to beat them in in the most scenarios possible, even if sometimes I catastrophically fail in a certain scenario, right? If I can get more wins against them, that's my goal. Kirby thinks opposite of this he looks at his team and says like you just said alan i've got 16 five stars on this team i've got talent everywhere i'm going to put my walk-in quarterback on who knows how to manage the game who can get stuff done and who can probably beat everyone probably even including florida on paper right Uh, but is not going to beat alabama now you've already heard us say on this podcast that that jt daniel needs to come in and play quarterback for georgia if they want to win even if that meant alan that Georgia could on average lose one more game during the season because maybe he's erratic or maybe it's a risk right now. He doesn't know the offense well enough. It doesn't matter because if you're Georgia and you have all these five stars, what is your goal? What is my goal if I'm Kirby Smart? It's to win a title, to hang a banner, which means I've got to do what's best for my team, which is to push my peak output far enough that I could win. So for me to watch Georgia roll into that game where already I'm thinking, look, You can't win a title with Spencer Bennett. Nice guy. Nice quarterback. average. Or Stetson Bennett. Stetson, Spencer, Stenson. Whatever. Bennett, Stenson. Can't even get his name right. But nice guy, right? Way overachieving. This is taking nothing away from him. Right. But you're not going to beat Clemson, Ohio State, or Alabama with him at quarterback. You're just not going to do it. I think
1: the days of that are over. You're thinking like the... Coker-led Bama teams, like a guy who's decent but is not going to wow you, I don't think you can get away with that right now.
2: It's not going to happen. And and you have to know this. This is a sign of being a good leader and a good coach. And with all that being said, what does that mean? That means they need to be playing the guy who can get it done for them and probably could lose a game to a lesser team. But what is the goal here? So to me, Georgia just wasted one or two weeks where they should have put in a different guy, should have put in Daniels, and they they could have – is it Daniel or JT Daniels? I always want to say JT Daniel. I think it's... But now that I'm saying on the podcast, I think it's I'm squirrel. questioning myself. He's
1: multiple JD. Daniels. Yeah, he's Daniels, Daniels, right? Sometimes
2: you get... A, by the way, when you have your own podcast, you think you know people's names really well, and then you're about to say it, and something in your brain triggers and says, is it Daniel or Daniels? I don't want to sound like an idiot, but JT Daniels, and if we're wrong, then I'll eat it afterwards. But regardless, he needs to be the quarterback. He should have been the quarterback. What happened on Saturday to me was an obvious outcome. Uh, with a guy who who just wasn't going to get it done. And now I'm curious, Allen, genuinely, to see what Kirby does. Because Kirby has a different problem than we have. We've got a defensive problem. They've got a quarterback problem. Does Kirby right the ship and do what's necessary to get his team to the next level? Or does he just hang on and hope that maybe the next time he plays Bama, his very tiny low margin for winning will somehow work? What does he do? Again, a wise coach says, I That ship already sailed. This guy can't beat Bama. I have to try someone else. The hard-headed stubborn coach says, ah, we'll just block and tackle better next time, and we'll beat him.
1: So this is interesting. You know, he basically played Jake Fromm over Justin Fields. Now, at that point, it could have been better. Fromm was having a good year. But in the system that they were running, recruiting a guy like Justin Fields, is that ever really going to work for them? Lots of questions around that. They did do something interesting. They played the guy, Dwan Mathis, in week one. And he looks so bad against Arkansas. Now, in hindsight, maybe not as bad to struggle against Arkansas. Lots of other guys have done that, but they moved away from him quickly and put in a guy who was going to be competent, at least. And like you said, I actually love Stetson Bennett's story. I love that he's a Georgia Lifer, he's a walk on, he's been playing in big games. And he's, you know, if you were, we talk about these guys who are walk ons. I mean, he looks tiny out there, but if you were to, like, know him in real life, you're like, this guy is the best athlete any of us know. He's unreal, right? But he's just not big enough, strong enough, you know, enough of a physical specimen to play at that high level and win against the best of the best competition. So, it's nothing against him, like you said. Um, I don't know. This is going to be fascinating. So, you know, JC Daniels is the boogeyman, right? Is he healthy? Is his knee back? Um, I think you look at that Bama result and go, it's worth finding out. Absolutely. If he, if he trots out and Bennett again, and again, if JT Daniels is healthy, that raises like red flags for me if I'm a Georgia fan. Now coming into the, and they have the margin of error for this game though. This Bama game doesn't actually mean anything theoretically. If they win the rest of the games, they get another shot at it. If they beat Bama, they're fine. So maybe you run him out there and you're like, I think we can win with them. Obviously, that's not going to be the case this year. So be very interesting to see what they do moving forward.
2: Yeah, and coaches do this all the time. And, and to put a bow on this one, it, it's one of the main reasons why when, when Dabo Sweeney benched Kelly Bryant, yeah, we went it. on this podcast and said that was a heroic move. And the way that he handled it was incredible. He handled it really well. The comments he made about it, I thought were really good. We've talked about it before. We've covered it before, but that ultimately won them a national title. There's no doubt in my mind it did. And that was not an easy decision, Alan. And again, I think coaches often fear too much the low side, but let's look at it this way. If you have a team of so many five-star athletes and so many baller players, then put the slightly more volatile guy in there because you should be able to survive his bad games. Look at it that way. And then when you get one of his good games and he's hot, now you can beat anybody. You have to look at it that way. You just have to. And I see a lot of coaches not doing that, and it drives me absolutely crazy. It is coaching corner time. This week's coaching corner is brought to you by Galloway Orthopedic. We mentioned that, that uh, our, new, our new friend, the Heisman bomber himself, Dr. Galloway, is going to be featured. But Galloway Orthopedics is located in Tampa, Florida, provides compassionate, effective care, and offers a full range of orthopedic treatment options. Whether you're a pro athlete or a weekend warrior, Galloway Orthopedics will get you back to 100% in the least amount of time possible. Galloway Orthopedics is owned and operated by Dr. Galloway, a native Floridian, a highly trained, board-certified orthopedic surgeon. He obtained all of his degrees from UF, undergrad med school included, Alan, with honors, and trained at UF Shands for his orthopedic residency. Working with Dr. Indelcado, who is the former UF team physician. And he was, in fact, uh, Dr. Galloway, one of the team physicians for the Gators, including the 08 National Championship squad. Nice. Yeah, how about that? Although his specialty is sports medicine, Dr. Galloway also treats a variety of injuries and traumas to knees, hips, shoulders, ankles, as well as any other orthopedic concern you have. You can visit his website at www.gallowayorthopedics.com or call him at 727-GO-GATOR. That's great. That's amazing. Yeah, he told me that, and I was like, that's too good to be true. Again, that's GallowayOrthopedics.com or 727-GO-GATOR.
1: Man, if you're in Tampa, why would you not call Dr. Galloway? That yeah. sounds like a
2: support oh, your man. Support your fellow Gators, without a doubt. All right, coaching corner. First one comes from Dr. Galloway himself while watching the unc game he noted that unc scores a touchdown there is just a couple of seconds left in the third quarter allen unc down 10 to florida state they decide to go for two and they get a false start so they're going for two they get a false start they're down 10 and then they decide to still go for two even though they're now from the seven yard line would you rather kick the extra point here or still go for two do you even like going for two in the first place when you're down 10
1: Yeah, this is maybe too early in the game for me to move towards some of these kind of maneuvers. I think I would have taken the extra point for sure. I like that. Real confident, quick answer.
2: This is is a tricky one. This is a good one. Let's start with the obvious. Okay, well, if I go for two, then I get within one score and I'm down eight. And on the surface, that looks like that fits my own always get yourself within one score. But there's a problem with this one. There's a problem with this one. You have to look at the other end, too. All right. So let's say that we don't get it. Yes. We're down 10, and Florida State scores a touchdown. What happens? We're down three scores. Yes. Because they're up 17. Exactly. Right? So when you're looking at the rule of two scores, you got to look at both ends of it. Or you look at the fact that you don't have enough time left. So with an entire fourth quarter left, if you're UNC, you sort of expect you are the better team. You expect your comeback is going to continue. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you can actually wind up being down three scores if Florida State scores one more time just to get yourself within eight points. Because, again, eight points, you still have to get that two-point conversion. Therefore, once you get moved back, even if you had a play you really liked going for two with, you certainly don't want to do it now because no team actually has a two-point play from the seven-yard line. Now you're just running a regular play. That's a foolish decision. They should have just gone out there,
1: taken their extra point, been down nine and gone in that direction. Yeah, I think I'm very much on record at being in favor of not consulting that chart and thinking about that until the late stages of the game. Because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how many weird things are going to go on where if you have just teams get this in themselves in this scenario all the time. Or if they looked back, it's like, if you just would have kicked the extra points, you'd be winning. You said if you keep chasing, you go for two, and you have to go for two, you have to go for two, and you put yourself in a really bad situation. Or if you just would have stayed the course, the math didn't matter at that point because, like you said, there's too many variables. So that that is definitely would be my coaching philosophy is not to like think about it so precisely. Like in the first quarter, you're not thinking, like, oh man, I gotta do this thing to get myself in these numbers. You're just gonna let the game play out. Yeah, neither mathematically, either way, like go for two every time or kick the
2: extra point every time. Both of those can be fine pure strategies. But it's when people do the kick the extra point 95% of the time and go for two 5% of the time. And when I go for two 5% of the time, it's on a whim. That's when you put yourself in really bad tactical land. So I think that's what happened here. Uh, again, you can make arguments for it. But most importantly, when you're looking and you're watching football on the weekends, pay attention to the backside side. That's of a great that point. score especially in high scoring games okay second one this one's really interesting alan danny kent brings it to us on twitter uh the tennessee titans were down in their game against houston 30 to 29 there's three minutes and 30 seconds left houston is driving on their 25 yard line it is second down and one clock is running second down and one Mike Vrabel sends a 12th man off the bench onto the field, which is pretty great because his own defender is very confused, but he's following his coach's orders like a good player, and takes the penalty for having too many men, or an illegal substitution penalty essentially, at which point the clock stops. Houston accepts the penalty, giving Houston first down and 10. First down and 10, the drive continues. Eventually the Tennessee Titans would win in overtime. This was largely heralded as quite the brilliant play by Mr. Mike Vrabel. What do you think about this?
1: I mean, I love it. I mean, if there's loopholes to be considered there, I think you have to do that kind of stuff. Now, again, people talk about spirit of the game and things like that, but that only happens when it's new. Once everyone does it, it's no longer the spirit of the game. I love this devious kind of stuff, especially if it's in the rules. Make them change it. If, If it's to your advantage, it's not going to get anybody hurt or be like, you know, devious or something like that. This is the kind of like stuff that coaches are running every single scenario. It's like, if we ever, this is very specific, obviously for this to work, but I love that kind of thinking.
2: Oh yeah. The United States exists because of guerrilla warfare, right? We fought, we fought the British lining up in a field. We would have gotten eviscerated. So this is brilliant tactical management by Vrabel. He has a history of this. He's done this stuff before, but the NFL rule here, Alan is really quirky. Because this only works with either two minutes remaining in the first half or less than five minutes remaining in the second half. Otherwise, this wouldn't work. Let me give you the example. If Houston had declined the penalty, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. Why doesn't Houston just decline the second down and one penalty? Then the clock will start running again. Oh, no, 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 no. It does not run. Under five minutes in the NFL, if a penalty is called on the defense and I'm the offense and I decline the penalty, Allen, the clock does not start until the snap until the snap. So essentially it's a free timeout that Mike Vrabel has either way. Now I would make the argument, Alan, that Houston should in fact have declined the penalty because it still would have given them an extra down that they wasted by accepting the penalty because the likelihood of them getting a first down there is extremely high. So Vrabel not only made the right decision, Houston compounded it by making the wrong decision, uh, he sort of Jedi mind tricked them with this yeah, one. Yeah, it's hard to
1: know. You're probably not anticipating those. You're not ready that. for
2: that. But this actually happens in flag football all the time, which is why it's funny. We talk a lot about flag football. It's, it's a passing game only, it's very strategic, but this stuff will go on a lot where people will attempt to jump off sides or do things. And to your point, Alan, they eventually did change the rules to where you could no longer take advantage of those situations. And this will happen in the NFL as well. They'll look at this and they will just write the rule that says, hey, if the offense chooses to decline a penalty with under five minutes, and you know whatever the scenario is, they can opt whether to run the clock or not, right. and the problem will be solved. But I love it. I mean, this is the crazy part, Alan. The, the statisticians went and looked at this. The the chances that the Titans were going to win this game went from seventeen percent before he did that. So if he continued on like normal and didn't do this, it would have been a seventeen percent chance of winning to twenty two percent by using that sort of you know rules engineered free timeout. That's great. Pretty remarkable move. A 5% move there is huge. And again, this is what coaches should be doing, right? Taking a look at these things. So hats off to him. Really fun coaching corner there. A Nice example of what could be done if you're really paying attention to the details.
1: Okay, let's look over at the national games. The ones that we picked. So I went four and six. You went four and six. We tied ugly again week. this week. Yeah. But ugly. Yes, but a lot of interesting results. The first one. Kind of fun. Kentucky at number 18, Tennessee. Tennessee was favored by six, uh, the score. Kentucky crushes them under a hail of interceptions, 34-7. to seven. I got that one. So, uh, James, your boy Jeremy Pruitt right here. I'm not going to. This is where you come out and you eat your crow.
2: You make opinions all and right. you say, I'm wrong. And I want to say to all of the Gator Nation that I, I am wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> Typically, you wouldn't base a coaching tenure on one game. But I actually said leading into this game that if Tennessee is who I think they are, if Pruitt's going in the right direction, he bounces back from a really tough emotional loss to a much better opponent where they were playing well, and he beats a Kentucky team, which is an excellent gatekeeper. That's taking nothing away from Kentucky, but Kentucky is not as talented as Tennessee, and he gets annihilated. I mean, drubbed, beaten badly. This is not good. So this is where I say I'm off the train now. Again, I wasn't on his train to be like a champion, but I thought, hey, this guy I think is one notch above the guys they've had here. I think he could get him to a stable place. This is a result that tells you he would never be any better than a middling, confusing, baffling, how-do-you-get-abused-by-a-Kentucky-team ten- I mean, kind of coach. So there could be some highs, but there'll be some really low lows. Not the kind of consistency you want to see out of your coach if you're Tennessee. Is a bad loss to a good Kentucky team, but a bad loss. And I will, I will now say I have given up the Jeremy Pruitt. He's a step above others. He seems to be just a different version of the other Tennessee coaches with his own problems, mainly the fact that he continues to choose a horrible quarterback, which, again, blows my mind. Alan, why these coaches stick with provably terrible quarterbacks. He did it. It doomed him.
1: Yeah, I think that's really the crux of the issue there is that no one can – Either you haven't recruited anybody to beat out Garantano or you're still playing him for some reason. You have to have a quarterback on your roster by at this time that would beat him out in some fashion. Or you just have to play somebody else. Somebody on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, called him Diet Muschamp, which I thought was just thrilling. Uh, Again, I don't think... There's a path forward where he becomes a very successful coach, but I I hadn't seen it. I wasn't a believer, and this is certainly not a data point towards that one. And Diet Muschamp is perfect, by the way. Muschamp is,
2: like, adequate, like we mentioned at South Carolina. He's adequate. He has a winning record. He's fine. Makes baffling decisions. He does horribly dumb things. He plays the wrong players at (laughs) times, and and that's what Pruitt's doing, and that's not good enough if you're a Tennessee fan for sure. All
1: right, in a really fun game that was just crazy down the wire – UCF falls at Memphis 49-50. to This makes me happy because this one I do feel right about. I
2: feel like UCF is on their predictable demise. It's going to be a grind down to the bottom, back to reality. A wild game. UCF blew a double-digit lead uh, with not a lot of time left, and then had a inter-team melee on the sideline. Melee is a strong word. It's not what really (laughs) happened, but Their kicker is is bashing his helmet against the wall by himself. He's upset at himself. And their backup quarterback decides that he has to come over and have some words with the kicker because he's unhappy that the kicker missed the kick to win the game. And that, to me, is just how UCF plays. They have all this swagger, and it's all because they believe things that aren't true. And when Mm. you believe a lie, when you think that you are a national champion, when you think that everyone is oppressing you, Allen, when no one is oppressing you, College football is not oppressing UCF. It's not the evil Power Five schools denying UCF a championship. It's not that way. But when you think that, then you have to you have to hit yourselves after a loss and act like it got stolen from you by your kicker, who somehow you know I don't know whatever. Either way,
1: UCF loses, wow. and I love it. And I'm not afraid to say I love UCF losing. It's great. That's that is great. I, both of us picked Memphis to cover this. They did not. Although I think we were on the right side of that thinking that Memphis was going to win the game. Maybe. They snuck it out and saw the they did. They did. Um, maybe the most jarring result of the day, number five UNC goes down to FSU 28-31.
2: Yeah, I think FSU is getting better under Mike Norvell. Maybe I should be more hesitant since I had the Pruitt comment. I think Mike Norvell's a good coach. I liked him when he got there. This is now another week, Allen, where FSU has taken a rather large step forward in quality of play. Now, UNC did a lot to help them in yes. this first half. But Florida State's not a polished team yet. They're not going to be one yet. This this first year, if Mike Norvell's really good, Allen should look a lot like Urban's first year at Florida. Topsy-turvy, a culture-changing year. But there's no doubt that Florida State team is much better than they were four weeks ago, and they're getting better each and every week. For UNC, this is a this is a brutal loss. First of all, you always want to beat Florida State. You don't get many chances to beat them if you're North Carolina. And you're, you're fifth, like your highest ranking ever, basically. It's a fake fifth, but you're fifth. Right, it's a fake fifth. Right, but still you're fifth. It doesn't matter. So that, that's heart-wrenching for them, especially the way it went down there at the end. Uh, but either way, I think Florida State's getting better. How good can they be? I don't know yet. Many, many questions. Remain. Yeah,
1: I don't want to put too much weight on this game as a as a data point in either direction for them. I do think they are improved. Mm-hmm from the beginning of the season, but they would almost have to be with how bad they were at the beginning of the year. I would think, you know, this is just, I would maybe be more willing to chalk this up to just high variance of a strange season that not that they're not capable of winning a game, but that I I wouldn't like hang my hat on this win and be like, yeah, we did it. Um, I think they're just as capable of, getting trashed by somebody else next week i mean you kind of clump that one in with their previous effort at notre dame notre dame just had a weird result this past weekend so i don't know i'm not ready to say i'm a believer in their trajectory this season overall i did like the mike norvell hire but the bigger storyline here is that unc just sucked and they only have themselves to blame all right, Pittsburgh at Miami. Miami takes care of business 19-31.
2: I got the win over you in this one, uh, which was nice after you, you smacked him with the Kentucky one. Yeah, But Miami barely pulls out that 10.5 good line by Vegas. <laughs> yeah, seriously. This is a good win by Miami, though, after their their world got eviscerated to come back against a Pittsburgh team. It's not great this year, but also is not going to roll over and get a win. does show. I think it shows that Manny Diaz is, in fact, trending Miami in the right direction. This is an important win. Don't underestimate the wins when your program with young kids on it is ascending and gets walloped. Don't underestimate the importance of winning that next game. It's a big deal.
1: And they did it, and so I think you have to keep an eye on Miami. I think they are moving in the right direction. All right. Ole Miss at Arkansas previously discussed Razorbacks. The Hogs run wild 33-21. Yeah. Uh, Matt Corral threw six interceptions. Normally you would look at that against what you would what you'd think about and, and just say Ole Miss just had a meltdown. But Arkansas at least had a hand in creating those six interceptions. But anytime you throw six picks, you're almost surely going to lose the game.
2: Yes. And when you get to the one yard line on two different drives and right, you get right. stopped on eight plays. Let me say, let me say like crazy goal line stops twice in that game.
1: They, they play this game a hundred times with no new information. They're just playing it over and over again. You're simulating. No one's learning from the previous effort because it hasn't happened. Do you think Arkansas wins the majority of those? I, I think it's a
2: coin flip. Okay. Because the, here's the thing. Arkansas's ability to stop Ole Miss running the ball was not fluky. Like when they wanted to go into a heavy run defensive package, they, they controlled the line of scrimmage. That's why I say goal line stops sometimes you can view them as like, that's fluky, which it could be. A guy drops a wide open pass, you get a penalty. That was not the case. Arkansas was continually rebutting Old Miss in short yarded situations. The bigger question for me, Alan, speaking of coaching, is Old Miss has the best running quarterback in the SEC hmm. in Plumlee. They didn't use him, they didn't use him. So I don't know if we're going to see that become a package here more in the future with Lane Kiffin's team, but that was very curious to be on the one-yard line rolling.
1: And this is again, your results would tell you that you shouldn't deviate because you've been so successful. But
2: yeah, but you would think maybe the second time you get down there, you know what? They got me once already. Let's see if we can score. But I don't think it was fluky. And again, a lot of those picks were those were bad picks. They even dropped another one. They couldn't get seven. So I think coin flips the better way to look at how that game went. Uh, but either way, that was a very surprising result to me, and I believed Arkansas was ascending upwards, and I liked how they ran defense, but whew,
1: six picks. Back down to earth goes Matt Corral. Louisville, who I'd been all over the place with, the very high to start the season, disappointed in them. They play a very strange game at Notre Dame. They lose 7-12, to so Notre Dame wins, but nothing pleasing about this you would have been so wise to take the opposite of me here
2: because yes. i mentioned that these 17 point these high tuner, i should have no matter what i do i can't get it right it i tried me. last year just to flip opposite because i couldn't i was always wrong and here
1: i am again so i, I mean, almost did that but then i have, had been burned by louisville every week seemingly and i just again they burned me again just the other direction they
2: got you the other way and obviously notre dame is classic notre dame vastly overrated although they are they do play in a real conference quote-unquote right now they still haven't really played anybody yet oddly well they'll get to and they will so this is is what I was going to say it's nice to not have to worry about Notre Dame like typical when you say oh great well look at their schedule they have one team left they don't they will have to play teams I don't have to worry if they're good or not or if they look like they're not good right now because we'll we'll figure
1: it out speaking of said team number one Clemson Tigers demolish, destroy, obliterate. Well, whatever word you'd like to put in here, Georgia Tech, 73 to 7. If you're Georgia Tech, I don't know what you do with this. You just go, we should all go home and not show our faces for a week. But more, I would say Clemson's dominance just shown through in this game
2: yeah if you're georgia tech you watch the film and it's seven to seven and you just leave it paused right there (laughs) and you don't watch anything else (laughs) and you celebrate that you were tied with them but we both picked georgia tech not because we actually thought clemson was not capable of blowing out georgia tech but because as we mentioned the history of clemson is they shut that stuff down they get to halftime they don't care anymore they play whoever well it was 49 to seven at halftime 49 now again That's not that crazy, because if Florida had Clemson's defense, it would be 49 to something at halftime on a lot of teams, too. That's what it looks like to have a complete team. But Clemson seems more interested maybe than ever this season, Alan, in in obliterating people. They, they just seem more dialed in. I don't know what it is. I don't know
1: if it's Trevor Lawrence leading the NCAA back to playing football. I don't know what it is, but 73-7? I mean, they put their punter in there and in the game. He like went 2-3 of for a touchdown. So
2: I mean, crazy. And if you're Georgia
1: Tech, I think you're very frustrated. Again, you expect to get beat by the
2: ones, but when you start to play against teams' twos and threes, you need your mainline guys to play hard, and they clearly
1: broke. A BYU bounces back takes care of business at Houston, 43 to 26. It looks like BYU is definitely going to go undefeated
2: now, barring some sort of epic collapse. And this is where I want to go with the counter UCF. So in my life, I think for most of you, and I know for you, it's true, Alan, I root for the underdog. I love the underdog. UCF should be this fun Florida underdog. They themselves tainted that situation. I don't like the fact that teams like BYU don't get a chance to lose. I don't like that. I didn't like that UCF did not get a chance to lose. I think that sucks. Uh, For BYU, I think it's going to suck this season that they're going to have this really nice team. If you're a coach, think about it. Just put yourself in their shoes for a second. You coach at BYU. You recruit. You work really hard. You put all this time and you go undefeated. That's really cool. That's nice. But you really, truly want to lose to someone. You want to get a chance to see how good you are. It's unfortunate in college football that there's just no
1: way to test yourself that way. Texas A&M... I wins. I don't know if this is an impressive win or not. It's hard to tell with Mississippi State, but they do win 28-14. We posted this on Twitter that the hero of the Texas
2: a m game, Kellen Mond, who lit us up for 333 yards and three touchdowns and had a perfect passer rating, proceeded to throw for 100 and some odd yards, 13 of 27 or 28. A pick, uh, extremely ugly outing by Kellen Mond. I just watched that game, Alan, and I was I was so mad. Mississippi State has, you know, I think, I don't know, one five star and eight four stars, and we have like thirty four stars and two five stars and tons more talent. And they had no problem containing A and M for most of the game. They really didn't, and that's just ugly and inexcusable. Oh, guess what? Mississippi State has a new coaching staff this year too, with COVID and everything else. And I just hated watching it. I'm gonna hate watching these games for the rest of the year when I think of how pitiful we were in that game. A M is exactly who we thought they were. There was no revelation that Mon stuff, you know, turned a corner or they found some new identity. They just played against us, which is the best way to get right in twenty twenty if you're a college football offense.
1: Yeah, this is a very weird AM game I mean, team. I mean we we talked about Kellen Mon. I mean he occasionally has these really great outputs. I think you're going to look at his schedule and say, well, that was his weird output against the Gators. I, their schedule now, the rest of the way, I mean, they, they probably are going to win most of their games. Now, they could definitely s- slip up, but they'll they'll be favored in every game moving forward. Um, they've already lost to Bama, so they're kind of shut out unless Bama slips up. Speaking of the Alabama Crimson Tide, they shut out Georgia after the half, and they win 41-24. That's super impressive to me, especially considering the way the first half went. Seemed like a back and forth, like this is going to go down the wire, and then Georgia's done.
2: Yeah, that's a game of adjustments there, like we mentioned. A game of execution, a game of sticking with what your plan is, communicating to your players correctly on the sideline. Hey, they're doing this, they're attacking this. One interesting note I thought they made on the broadcast a lot, which typically they don't make really any good comments on a broadcast, but... They did correctly mention that Georgia likes to attack over the middle of the field. And then they obviously said that Nick Saban spent all week preparing his team to stop passes over the middle of the field. And that eventually happened. But nice to hear that there was some game planning and some (laughs) stuff. But in either way, really fun game, Alan, for a lot of that game. Heavyweight fight. Uh, Really, Mac Jones has beyond impressed me. It was interesting with his trajectory. We kind of treat Mac Jones like he was a walk-on or something. Right. But he's a four-star
1: quarterback, right? Who he, just he was, seemed like two had beaten him out, who's just a guy. But right. But he's been really impressive.
2: But he was a four-star quarterback with plenty of talent. And, and I myself, you know, kind of thought, yeah, who is this guy? But his, his progression last year when he was playing to where he is this year is, is immense. Uh, he throws one of the best deep balls, if not the best deep ball in all of the country when it comes to accuracy. And I'm not saying the way it comes off his hand is the most beautiful, but him putting the ball on those man-to-man routes is as good as anybody. And that makes Alabama so dangerous because their weapons on the outside are devastating, and he is dropping balls in left and right. If you play man against Alabama, they're gouging you right now for big plays. I mean, those drives against Georgia, that's a good Georgia defense sound george even where five six plays because there's bomb 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 and george is playing man george is playing aggressive george is playing coverage really impressive stuff from mac jones i thought and and equally on the other on the other side <clears throat> you know for the rest of the west probably a little bit unnerving that yeah. after old miss smacked them that the bama defense got better as that game went on started to look more like what we're used to probably not comforting you know to
1: those out west Yeah, this is kind of interesting. I mean, if you look at, speaking of the rest of the schedule for Alabama, I mean, I think they played all their hardest games so far because LSU and Auburn are down. They played Ole Miss. They played A&M. They played Georgia. I think they're essentially in the playoff already. Even if they were to lose an SEC title game rematch to Georgia or potentially Florida, I, I think they're still in the playoff like you know, barring very weird, weird, weird things happening. So uh, they're going to cruise the rest of this schedule.
2: And I want to ask you one question on this one. When you watched that game, did you feel like those two teams were a tier above us as you watched it? Or did you feel It was hard
1: not to. I mean, especially Georgia in the first half when they were competent offensively. Now, um, I didn't get to see very much of the second half there. It live, at least, you know, um, yeah, Alabama, certainly. They they feel like they had another gear that we have yet to show. And I think offensively we can hang with anybody in the country. Defensively, obviously, that has been far from the truth. So, yes. Now, this is weird because, I, you know, you take last year's competent defense and this year's offense, and I think like, we could be in any game. We can beat any team, and that's, again, part of the frustration. Yeah, well said there. Uh, Auburn? Loses to South Carolina 22 30. Our little SEC roundup here. I mean, uh, our friend Chris Musgrove, aka Grover, pointed out if you just watch Bo Nix, how many times he feels pressure or no pressure, bails right out of backs up out of the pocket, rolls right, condenses the windows he can throw to, and then throws a sidearm pass out of bounds is like every other play, seemingly. He, He's not taking steps forward as they had hoped. And I don't know if he's taking steps back, but he's not the guy that at least right now that they are hoping he was going to turn into this season. No.
2: And again, another really curious coaching decision. I mean, you know, coming into this season, that Bo Nicks really struggled last year. You're in practice. Is he getting better? Is he not? It's clear through all of these games. He has not, I think you owe it to your football team to try someone else. You at least need to prove to your fans and other people that you have no one else. And if you don't, that's also still your fault but at least do the right thing. For South Carolina, though, that's a nice win. That's a good win. We said on the podcast that Colin Hill, South Carolina's quarterback, is good and can move the ball, and he did that. And, and, again, Auburn's defense is not easy to go against, and he can do those things. If you give him the looks he wants, he will move the ball on right. you. And, and Auburn did that, and South Carolina well, was able to take advantage of that. The
1: narrative for Auburn of why they might be good this year was that, you know, Bo Nix takes a big step forward. They got some good skill position. Maybe the offensive line finds something. Uh, they were they lost too much on the defense. Bo Nix is not taking a step forward. It's going to be a struggle this year. They're like probably a five and five team. Uh, they've got some losses looming. Of course, Vandy, Mizzou postponed, LSU, UF postponed. As we said, um, so that's the rest of the SEC. Before we move ahead, let's go ahead and thank some more people here. I'm going to read off some of. Our patrons here, James, who've been with us for quite a while. Michael Viramontes, Stephen Tosquez, Lakeside Davis. That's a great name. The immortal Guillermo Diaz. Guillermo Diaz, co-founder
2: of the firm, my day job. Uh, love that he's a supporter. It's kind yeah, of that's fun, great. Kind of a fun little nod, really, but Thanks, still Guillermo. great.
1: Jamie Wagner, Bill Hood,
2: Anne McQuinn. And good to hear from you we heard from you you wrote in also i wanted to say this to the ladies out there although most of our our patrons are are males we do have females uh, we do have a decent amount of female listeners and i was talking with one on sunday and she was telling me cassie was telling me that she was like oh you actually do have female listeners I'm like yeah actually we do have quite a few of them so you're out there you're not alone but of course we're going to we're going to overly
1: celebrate you when you're an og patron like Anne is. thanks for your support ann indeed richie legler Mike Chimilarski, John C. Araby, Andrew Mosley, Christopher Millward, Robert Iceby. Not sure about that one. Uh, but Robert, thank you for being a part of the team. Chris Hall, Russell Hall, TJ Nowick, uh, the man known as Ocho Gringo, David Meadows, Robert Davies, Kyle Moore, Thomas Upshaw, Richie Caudill, the man. Himself, Alexander Leventhal. There it is. Yeah, just on the list right that's, there.
2: That's when he entered in. He entered in hot, like number seventy-five, number eighty or ninety, actually on the patron list there. And then that's he's been ruling ever since.
1: James M. maynard Jr. and Paul and
2: excuse me, Raúl Rodríguez. Thank you guys. Appreciate you so much. We always want to celebrate again our patrons and also all of you for supporting us. We keep saying because we mean it. We respond to each and every communication that you send to us on any social media platform and or email. And if we don't hit us back, we're sorry. Yeah, we'll do it. We try our best. We always do it. We will do it. It's our commitment. All right. It is still my season and my winning season or my winning season, your 500 season at my bookie. I'm slightly above your 500, I think. But regardless, I am winning still. And winning season means doubling your first deposit and winning big. Bet on all sports, including live betting. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, and collect your cash. Invest in your intuition. That part's specifically for you, Steve Sites Select from hundreds of future bets, or you can bet games in real time with MyBookie's live betting. Use the promo code GATORNATION and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play. Sign up now as your winning season begins today. Again, visit mybookie.ag and enter the promo code GATORNATION for a 100% deposit match up to $1,000. Let's go through the upcoming games this weekend. Florida, of course, off again with the COVID bye week.
1: The Big Ten returns to action. Yeah. Alan, are you excited about that? I am. It's more options on a Saturday afternoon, potentially bigger games out there. It's fun to have most of the country back we're still waiting on the Pac-12
2: yeah it's more quality football and although I like to dog the Big Ten in normal years because that's what you do as an SEC fan I love the Big Ten their pageantry their tradition I mean a lot of the blue blood schools are Big Ten schools it's gonna be really fun to have them back in the mix I'm really curious to see how they handle it what their stadiums look like they're much more strict than the other schools have been so far so we shall see first up on the docket and you put this one on here just (laughs) for funsies Syracuse taking on number one Clemson quick pause for a second everyone what do you think the line is I'll give you a second what do you think this spread is say it out loud if you guessed minus 45 and a half you are correct
1: that is the line Alan what are you taking on this one (laughs) I mean Syracuse just lost to Liberty this week is why I wanted to put it on here I mean that what a collapse by them they were just in a nosedive I think this is a little experiment by Vegas. Like, how high can they put this line, right? What will it actually take for people to bet on Syracuse? I mean, this is just a stupendous. But I think I still have to take Clemson for what they showed last week. They won by almost 70 last week. So, yeah, Clemson, right? Yeah, this is the classic don't bet on this game. Right, well, they're going to win by whatever point margin they want to and bef- our previous narrative about them has shifted but
2: <laughs> correct so <laughs> I go. was going to go with Syracuse at first thought but then I thought to myself you know what Clemson has been scoring with their backups pretty consistently this year and that is the biggest difference between this year and last year to me As last year the backups would come in and they would not score anymore that does not seem to really be the case. So therefore, I think Trevor Lawrence might only play a quarter and a half of this game. We'll Honestly, see. I really think he might only play that much. He probably only should. But I don't know that it's going to matter. So I'm also going to take Clemson, but you know, that's, that's crazy. All right, Nebraska back in action. They've been campaigning, wanting it. They were going to go I on the road. And their reward is to go on the road and play Ohio State, which is a 26-point favorite.
1: Yeah, be careful what you wish for here, I guess. Um, although I'm I'm glad to have this game on the docket. I, this is so hard picking these games blind, right? So what are these teams going to show up like? What are they going to play? What are they going to employ? Actually, James, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to take Nebraska here. That line is high enough that it makes me think that there's a window here for Nebraska to cover. I think there is. And again, I think
2: Scott Frost should make big strides this year if he's the coach that anybody thought he was. This is year three for him. However, I think this is Ohio State's best team ever. Maybe so. I just put it out there. I've been high on them. I've been telling everyone this. Uh, I haven't even seen them play yet. It doesn't matter. I believe in Ryan Day. Can they get there week one, though? That's the question. I don't know. And that's what makes this really interesting. But that's why this line is so big. A lot of people, myself included, expect huge things out of Ohio State this year. I tend to like to downplay Ohio State. But this team, uber, uber talented, led by a very capable quarterback. I am really excited about seeing this game, though, despite the 26-point spread. NC State... On the road at North Carolina, number 23, NC State, by the way, sneaking up on people. Uh, North Carolina favored by 16 in this
1: game. No way. No way at all. Is that a misprint, Alan? Did you type this incorrectly? I don't think so. We can go back and look at it. I mean, they're, UNC has played other teams close. It's not like they've been just knocking people out of the park. So I, I have to take NC State here. There's no choice for me, right? It seems like that's the case, but I'm going to
2: preface this with the dreaded this is a, a high teen line, <laughs> and I am never touching a high teen line again in betting ever. And here I am having to do it on the podcast. But that was a really emotionally deflating loss for it UNC. It, with college football, the best teams do bounce back typically the second week. I don't know where their emotions are going to be after that loss. NC State's going to be feeling a chance here to play within that that range, and I think sixteen is big enough. And I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna go with NC State. Well, they could be feeling themselves. I mean, a win over a top 25 team is still a good win after you just lost to Florida State. So, but to win by 16 is a whole other level. I don't, don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to say it's going to happen. All right, Bama,
2: curious line alert, Alan. Yeah. Curious line alert.
1: Bama favored by 21 over Tennessee. I mean, again, we, we look at some of these lines and we go, what do they know that I don't know? But what I know so far is I have to take Bama. Uh, me too. We were right, obviously. Last week we we cited the A and M line as a
2: curious line, and we were correct. So if you kind of pick like our lock of the week so far, that line looks curious to me. Again, Tennessee, if you're following the narrative, is probably emotionally as about about as flat and down as you can be right now. And if this game gets off to a bad start for them, right. Bama's defense should not have trouble dispatching Tennessee's offense. This feels like a like a nice bet
1: right so i think tennessee is gonna have they should definitely make a quarterback change you play a true freshman but you don't want to play a true freshman in this game so i think you're still going to see garantano and that means that you're going to see bama win by a lot now we look at auburn
2: in this game again hopefully because you're a listener of this podcast this game's going to feel much more interesting to you than maybe the general public auburn minus three at ole miss why is this interesting, Alan? Because Auburn, as we mentioned, also plays a lot of six defensive back backfields. In fact, Auburn has been known to play a three-one-seven, one one linebacker, seven defensive backs. They will be adequately prepared to stop an, an offense like Lane Kiffin's. This could be interesting.
1: I mean, Auburn's offense has just not gotten untracked at all, but everyone seems to move the ball against Ole Miss. This is going to be fun. I Man, just because I'm getting points, I think I'm going to take all this.
2: I don't know what to do with this because this is going to show me how good Lane Kiffin is with one week and his quarterback, Matt Corral. Also, how quickly Matt Corral can adjust to seeing a lot of the same things he saw last week. True. Can he do a Kyle Trask and just keep improving, or does he get stuck here? Not a game I'd bet on for all those reasons. Really hard to know what to do or think of. I don't know. I don't like this game, but... I just don't like Bo Nix and Auburn. And I'm going to take Ole Miss, but I would would stay far, far away. Indeed. Iowa State, number 17 Iowa State, back here. They made a feature on week one when they lost. And now we're talking about them again down the road. They've quietly been winning, Allen. They are now at Oklahoma. State, sorry, Oklahoma State. Number six, Oklahoma State. He's yeah, quietly that, been beating nobody. Yeah, you way. read
1: that as Oklahoma because you looked at the number six. And I thought,
2: why is there number six there? But number 17, Iowa State at number six, Oklahoma State, quietly been winning after a really close week. One win, and Oklahoma State
1: favored by three and a half. Man, I as the podcast nation knows here, I'm a sucker for the clones. I, I'm not a believer in Oklahoma State, but I do think this is going to be a, a close game. And, and a win for Oklahoma State would be a good win. But I got to go with my clones. You, I don't have a feel for this game at all. I, I do not have a feel for I Oklahoma hate State. this game.
2: Don't bet this game. I'm going to take Oklahoma State uh, for no other reason than I think Mike Gundy's mullet's good for one win a year. There but I actually, my gut tells me that Iowa State is the pick here, but I wouldn't touch it. So, you know, for funsies, I'll take Oklahoma State. Number 18, Michigan. The fighting Jim Harbaughs. His sixth year there, Alan. Someone else I was also wrong about. I want to go on the record. Completely wrong about that. I thought Jim Harbaugh would do much better at Michigan. He has not been the coach I thought he would be there. Michigan favored by three and a half over number 21, Minnesota. Minnesota, a team on the rise.
1: Yeah, I do not like the vibes coming off this Michigan team. So I'm going to take Minnesota here. Michigan could surprise us and have a great year, but that does not feel like the direction they're trending right now. I love the way that Minnesota is trending, and I'm going to take
2: the momentum trend up of Minnesota, and I'm taking Minnesota. All right, number nine, Cincinnati. They've gotten a lot of love on the podcast today, except they're heading into SMU, number 16, SMU. SMU favored by two
1: and a half. Man, this is probably the game of the weekend, I guess, in some sense. Just because of the ranking of Cincinnati and SMU, they're going to have the nice little spotlight here. Uh, JT Raymond uh, gave me some flack for picking against SMU. So maybe I'll go for SMU here. I, I think Cincinnati is going, going to struggle to keep pace with them offensively.
2: I like that. And Jackie Raymond, I'm sorry. I've, I've been ponying up for a while now, but I've got to go with Cincinnati here.
1: All right. I mean, it's going to be a fun game.
2: Great game. That should be fun to watch. Seriously, if you love college football, you should start getting into games like that. That's going to be a good one. Florida State at Louisville. Just a zany, zany game here with two teams you cannot read. Louisville favored by five.
1: Yeah. Give me the Cardinals. I'm... Yes, please. Okay, I'm going opposite here. I'm right. going to stick, uh,
2: stick with the improvement of, uh, yeah, someone is going to get hurt bad this week. <laughs> That's the bottom line. <laughs> or we'll bounce it out. We'll see. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, Penn State, number eight Penn State. I keep announcing the teams out their rankings because they haven't played yet. Number eight Penn State, though, six and a half point favorites you think they're playing someone good in your mind but they're playing Indiana they are playing someone good james which indiana. is a sneak attack yeah. someone
1: good that's the point of that indiana not a traditional football team look out they're good uh, yeah you know penn state not getting a lot of respect on this line here i do think this will be a good game but under 7 points i i think i have to go for penn state here yeah it seems that
2: way james franklin remarkable football coach but i don't think has like the stratosphere power I say remarkable because if you look at what he did at Vanderbilt, yeah, that is remarkable. The guy knows what he's doing. Seven feels nice for Penn State because of that. Again, this is a very competent, accomplished football coach. Doesn't have maybe that top end ceiling stratosphere kind of kind of guy you want to hit. But against Indiana, he's got better athletes across the board. I feel like you got to like that line. Indian will be frisky again this year though Oh yeah, no, that's a tight line If it's seven and a half, eight, I might change my opinion there South Carolina, this is, a, this is an interesting one South Carolina on the road
1: at LSU LSU favored by six and a half So again, we're finding out so much Week to week, right? Missouri, are they better than we thought they were? They handle LSU LSU just seems like They were in a world of pain coming out of that game They get a reprieve they don't have to play. Last week, you know, missed the Florida game. I Man, looking at this LSU-South Carolina game, it's like, well, LSU by 6.5, like you slam dunk, right? Normally. We are in strange days indeed. I'm going to take South Carolina, I guess. Oh, man, I don't want to pick either side, James. Save me here.
2: Me too. Look, I've watched both these teams on film. I'm not a game I would bet here because you can't. You never want to bet when both teams are wild cards, and they are. But That's on good. film, LSU definitely has the better offense, but South Carolina has by far the more sound defense. I think football has sadly passed Bo Pelini by. He used to be great, not great. And I just Is think Miles in general, Brennan healthy as well. Also best about to say that wild card and miles brennan not being healthy and i think in general this is a nice matchup for south carolina i think they do match up this is a game they can win and therefore i think it could be close and we know there's one thing must champ itself in it's in running all the clock out and keeping a game close at the end so six and a half seems nice i wish it was seven but either way i'm taking south carolina
1: yeah i would not be surprised if lsu beats them or even beats them handily i mean this is such a weird year but I mean, LSU defensively has not shown they could even stop a soul. Think about what Mississippi State did week one versus every other week, giving up just a ton of points and yardage to Missouri. I don't think I can trust them until they show me otherwise. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, In my other items category, Alan,
2: one more plug for the YouTube channel. It's out there. Subscribe to it. That way you won't miss anything. The Gator Nation football
1: podcast. That's all I had. How about you? Man, it's weird going into two just separate weekends not having a Gator game. I don't like it. I don't like it. So let's hope for the world to get right and that we get to see all these games. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for being on the discussion, supporting the show, listening to the show. You guys are the best. Uh, We'll be back again next week. We'll get you ready for the Missouri game and talk about all the stuff that's going to happen, I'm sure, this weekend. Have a great day, guys. We'll talk to you soon.